best way to make the most energy derived from fasting is to do water-only fasting in an environment of rest. It does appear that fasting has a preferential predilection to mobilizing and eliminating Even that 12 to 16 hours of fasting cumulatively is thought to induce changes that are thought to be beneficial. So my clinical experience though is the less animal food we have in the diet, the better the clinical outcomes are in the conditions that we're treating. Maximizing both healthy life expectancy and life expectancy, a whole plant food SOS-free diet, I believe has the best support. Welcome to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast, where we meet the world's top experts to explore the secrets of health, mindset, longevity, and so much more. Are you ready to take charge of your existence and biohack your life? This show is for you. Please keep in mind, we're not dispensing medical advice and are not responsible for any outcomes you may experience from implementing the tactics lying herein. Are you ready? Let's do this. Welcome back to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. Friends, I am so excited about today's episode. I first was exposed to Dr. Alan Goldhammer in a Netflix documentary, and then I heard him on Rich Roll's podcast, and I just thought, this is so cool. I have got to get him on the show. Even though I'm the host also of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast, we really don't talk about extended fasting that much. So it was really, really exciting to dive deep into it with the founder of the most well-known extended fasting clinics in the country. So this was very, very exciting. I also love that Dr. Goldhammer comes from a very vegan-centric approach, and I think it's nice to bring on different viewpoints because a lot of the guests on the show are more in the paleo, keto, even carnivore sphere. So it's really nice to engage with more plant-based people and get all different perspectives. So I really think you guys will learn a lot. I'm really excited. The show notes for today's episode will be at melanieavalon.com slash extendedfasting. Those show notes will have a complete transcript, so definitely check that out. There will also be an episode giveaway for this episode. For that, just join my Facebook group, IF Biohackers, Intermittent Fasting plus Real Foods plus Life. Comment something you learned or something that resonated with you on the pinned post to enter to win something I love. All right, without further ado, please enjoy this wonderful conversation with Dr. Alan Goldhammer, the founder of True North Health Center. Hi, friends. Welcome back to the show. I am so excited about the conversation that I am about to have. So listeners might be a little bit surprised because it's about a topic they might think that I talk about a lot or know a lot about because I am the host of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast as well. But that is something that we actually don't talk about a lot in that show, and that is extended fasting. And I'd been dying to do a deep dive into extended fasting and everything surrounding it, and I wanted to get the perfect person for the topic. And who better would be perfect for that than Dr. Alan Goldhammer? He is the founder of True North Health Center in California, and they do extended fast there. And you guys might have seen him. He was recently in the Netflix documentary on Unwell. They featured it, which was really, really amazing. He's also the author of a book called The Pleasure Trap, which I read and friends get this book. There is so much information in there. I'd love to dive deep into it as well. But yeah, I am just so excited. So Dr. Goldhammer, thank you so much for being here. It's my pleasure. So to start things off, would you like to tell listeners a little bit about your personal story and 
what led you to your obsession with fasting and having the the center that you have today? Well, well, sure. I mean, I got started as a young kid, actually. I was a frustrated basketball player. My best friend at the time, Doug Lyle, who is currently the psychologist at the True North Health Center, used to beat me up badly playing basketball. And I, you know, practiced and tried lots of things, but ultimately got desperate enough. I thought maybe if I got physically healthier, it would give me an edge. So I started reading and I came across a books by people like Herbert Shelton that said that health was the result of healthful living and that healthful living involved diet, sleep, exercise, and fasting. And I thought, well, that's interesting. And so I started to apply the dietary principles, which is basically a whole plant food diet that's free of chemicals like oil, salt, and sugar. And of course, the results failed because it turns out my friend Doug Lyle also adopted the same diet and he still beats me to this day. We play basketball, I'm 62, and he still he still beats me badly every time we play. But it did get me interested. I was also inspired by my overweight uncle who was a medical doctor and knew everything about anything. When I had decided at 16 to pursue alternative health, he became really upset with me. He said that nobody in our family would be going to see any of those alternative health type doctors, let alone becoming one of those. He told me that better I should be a communist spy. And my father, who was a very serious guy, he took me aside. He said, son, you know, your uncle is a very prominent physician. And he says, I don't know anything about this alternative medicine. But he said, anything that makes him that upset and mad, well, it can't be bad. So good luck to you, son. And you stick to your guns. And ultimately, I did go to chiropractic college in Oregon, osteopathic college in Australia, where I watched something happen that really wasn't taught in school, and that was that people were getting well. I saw people with high blood pressure, diabetes, autoimmune diseases, certain types of cancer recovering, doing essentially nothing, which was fasting, followed by a whole plant food SOS-free diet. And so when I came back in 1984, it's a long time ago, 30, 36 uh, years ago, my wife, Dr. Morano, and I opened up the True North Health Center, which focus was getting sick people well. So we treated patients with fasting, followed by a whole plant food SOS-free diet, and we began to document the results that we were seeing and eventually formed the True North Health Foundation, which is a 501c3 nonprofit research-based organization, which operates our facility today and drives our research and efforts. And it's really amazing how good the body is at healing itself if you get out of the way. Yeah, this is so incredible. And I'm dying to know, since fasting is, you know, it's a lot of not doing things, has the actual program at the center changed much since the very beginning? Since basically with fasting, you're, you're not eating? <laughs> like, how has it evolved? Well, yeah, there's been a big change in that we're a whole lot bigger. We, you know, we we went from a facility with 20 beds to, you know, what we are today with, you know, where we could accommodate uh, over 70 patients and 20 live-on staff and, you know, a total staff of almost 70 people between, you know, the operation, the outpatients and the research. So, you know, we see a thousand new patient admissions for fasting a year now and have a research team which is allowing us to document these changes. Really, for the first time, there really hasn't been a lot of documentation of this prolonged water-only fasting where patients fast from 5 to 40 days in a controlled setting. So this is really kind of novel 
work. And, and the data that we're getting is really kind of virgin data because there's not been very many good looks at exactly what happens to the body when it does this prolonged water-only fasting. What do you consider a short, a moderate, and a, a long fast? Well, we, we don't fast patients at our clinic routinely over 40 days. So up to 40 days, you know, we consider, you know, a routine fast. I think just a general consensus, you know, a fast of five days to 40 days are considered prolonged fast. Five day, less than five days would be considered shorter fast. So a huge, huge portion of my audience is very, very familiar with intermittent fasting. And maybe we can clarify some of the terminology surrounding intermittent fasting, time-restricted eating, extended fasts. So our, our, our definition is pretty strand, standard because we use intermittent fasting with every patient every day. We believe that people benefit from fasting between 12 and 16 hours every day and limiting the feeding window to between 8 and 12 hours, depending on if you're trying to lose weight or gain weight, you know, your individual circumstances. You know, everybody fasts every night and they break their fast with breakfast in the morning. So it's just a question of when you should stop eating. And we believe that people should stop eating at least three hours before they go to sleep at night, uh, not eat through the evening and not eat in the morning until the appropriate time, which would allow them to have, again, between an eight and 12 hour feeding window. The goal of uh, intermittent fasting under this model is that even that 12 to 16 hours of fasting cumulatively is thought to induce changes that are thought to be beneficial. It may also facilitate re the reduction of overeating, which is really the main problem you see contributing to metabolic syndrome. Today, two-thirds of people are overweight. I mean, it's a, it's a huge and expanding problem. And for people that have you know, waist circumferences over 40 inches for men or 35 or have triglycerides over 150 milligrams per deciliter, or if they have, their blood pressure is elevated or they have excess fasting glucose or reduced HDL, if they have three or more of those things, we call it metabolic syndrome. And we know that metabolic syndrome is associated with liver cancer and colorectal cancer and gout and diabetes and stroke and congestive heart failure, myocardial infarction and coronary artery disease and non-alcoholic fatty liver and probably is one of the major contributing factors to increased vulnerability to death from infections, including COVID. So, you know, dealing with metabolic syndrome may be one of the big challenges for our society today. And one of the things that we've discovered with prolonged water-only fasting, even more so than, say, keto diets or these types of interventions, is that water-only fasting preferentially appears to mobilize visceral fat. So the ratio of visceral fat lost is highest in water-only fasting compared to any other type of equivalent weight loss approach that we've discovered. In fact, we are just now completing a study I believe we've completed 25 of the 30 subjects that's going to be enrolled in, in this study using a new Hologix DEXA scanner that we purchased. We've been able to do very detailed whole body composition assessments and the changes that occur before, during, after fasting, and actually on follow-up. And again, preliminary evidence suggests that not only is fat mobilized preferentially during fasting, but visceral fat is mobilized. And that the, so, for example, a person might lose 20% of their body fat, but 40 to 50% of their visceral fat in a 10-day fast. So there, we'll have this data that'll come out and we'll, we'll know for certain, but it does appear that fasting has a preferential predilection to mobilizing and eliminating visceral fat. And visceral fat is thought to be one of the contributing factors in metabolic syndrome that increases vulnerability to the conditions that I mentioned.
Yeah, this is so incredible. And for listeners, if you're not familiar, visceral fat is the fat. It's more interior surrounding our organs and considered to be pretty inflammatory. I read one study that was looking at fasting and it found that it created a visceralization of subcutaneous fat so that the subcutaneous fat could then be used as a a backup source to the visceral fat. And then upon refeeding, that seemed to switch back to subcutaneous fat. Have you seen that study? Well, I'm not sure which study you're talking about. There's literally hundreds of studies that have been coming out now. One thing we do know is that, you know, visceral fat probably shouldn't be there. If the body gets to the point where, you know, there's no place else to shove it, you know, maybe that's a place that it goes. But the bottom line is we know that it's at least correlated with increased disease and getting rid of it is probably a highly desirable intervention. And it appears that there's no more efficient way to do that than to do essentially nothing. Yeah, that's so amazing. The other thing I wanted to mention in water-only fasting, the old wives' tale that, you know, you, you, you gain weight and then you lose weight during fasting and you gain it back when you recover is not true. In fact, what we've been able to demonstrate using this new technology is that the fat that's lost during fasting is, is both water, fat, glycogen, fiber, and muscle. And the, fat, the weight that's regained after fasting when you apply a whole plant food SOS-free diet is, is strictly water, fiber, glycogen, and muscle. And in fact, fat loss continues during recovery, even though weight you know, recovery is taking place. In other words, what happens is you're losing fat, but you're also losing water and glycogen and, and fiber. So the fiber in your gut isn't there. The water, uh, there's a natural dehydration that occurs during fasting. And you lose a couple pounds of glycogen that are in your muscles because you burn that up in the first couple of days of fasting before you move into ketosis. Well, but the weight that's regained after fasting is not fat. Fat continues to go down even though the scale weight goes up because it's a question of rehydration, realimentation, and pumping the muscle cells back up. And that's really exciting so that people you know, used to believe that you know, fat comes off, fat goes back on, and that just turns out not to be the case. And do you see that only with refeeding on whole foods, plant-based? What about like whole foods, including meat, and then a standard American diet? Well, if you go back to greasy, fatty, slimy, dead, decaying flesh and highly processed foods, you're going to gain fat back. That's what made you fat to begin with is the highly processed foods, particularly the oil, the sugar, and the passive overeating that's stimulated by eating salt in the diet. So one of the keys is not only getting on a whole plant food diet where caloric density is low, but nutrient density is exceptionally high. But it's getting rid of the chemicalized components that make up 86 or 90% of the calories of most people eating in society, which is salt, oil, and sugar. That's what we talk about, a whole plant food SOS-free diet. You know, what's good for short-term weight loss, which would be, you know, say a high animal food, plant-based, you know, green vegetable diet, isn't necessarily the best thing for long-term health stability from our viewpoint. So we want to we want to get people around 10% of calories from protein. We want to see about 15 to 18% of calories from fat and the balance coming from whole plant food complex carbohydrates. And what we found is that's what works well, not only to get the weight and normalize the blood pressure, normalize the diabetes, but to sustain it over the long run. And what we're also seeing now, we're getting our first 35-year follow-ups on patients where we've been tracking people essentially from, you know, many of these people started at 50, now they're in their mid-80s. And what we keep seeing over and over again, the people that eat these whole plant food SOS-free diets are able to sustain those changes and sustain their life, avoid the debility. And you know, their friends around them, of course, are falling 
right and left, and yet they're able to sustain a high degree of vigor. And we believe it's in part because of these whole plant food diet that minimizes some of the arachidonic acid and exposure to some of the other free radical issues that prematurely age people out. Yeah, I'd love to expand on that a little bit more because my audience, a lot of them are in the paleo sphere, the keto sphere. I've had people in the carnivore world and the high protein world on the show, but then I've had like, you know, Dr. Douglas Graham and Cyrus and Robbie mastering diabetes and the plant-based approach. And I find that there's a lot of emotional stress and confusion for people because they often feel like they're receiving what seems like science and validated studies and benefits from both of these approaches, these two sides of the coin. And I'm always trying to dive deep and try to figure out what's going on there. So what would you say to listeners who are following, let's say a whole foods keto type diet. So including me, but it's whole foods. So I'm not saying like, you know, standard. Why don't we first start? Let's talk about the things we all agree on. There's general consensus. Number one, refined carbohydrates are a big problem. I don't know of anybody out there arguing for sugar and refined carbohydrates is a healthful thing. That's soda, the soda pop diet or the whatever. I mean, generally, whether you're keto, paleo, Atkins, or a whole plant food, everybody agrees the sugar is a health compromising chemical that's you know created a mess. And we've gone to where people are eating as much as 150 pounds a year or more. It makes people fat. It makes people sick. So let's agree that all of us can agree sugar is probably not a good thing or refined carbohydrates. Now, this is a problem because most carbohydrates eaten by people in society are refined carbohydrates. People are not eating uh, as their, their main diet, Hubbard squash, butternut squash, steamed vegetables. That's not what people are talking about when they talk about carbs. They're talking about flour, sugar, white, you know, refined carbohydrates. So second of all, oil. Most people would agree that the essential fats are critical in the diet, that you can get the omega-3 fatty acids that you need from whole foods, whether it be animal foods or plant-based foods. You know, we can talk about differentiations there. But we don't need to have oil. We don't need to have especially heated oils, fried foods, and which makes another huge percentage of the calories that people are getting. That excess fat in the diet may be a problem. Not only because it's you know highly efficient nine calories per gram, the fat you eat, the fat you wear kind of thing, but also because it's a highly fractionated processed food doesn't provide the same satiety feedback that whole fats in food would, and there's a peroxidation process that occurs particularly with heat and the use of highly fractionated products like oil, including olive oil, that may be detrimental. So, and a significant percentage of people would agree that oils and highly processed fats would be detrimental. The area that we get into more controversy with people is another chemical that's added to food. It's salt. You know, critically essential nutrient without which you would die. But all the sodium you need, just like all the carbohydrate you need and all the protein you need, can be derived healthfully from whole plant foods. You don't need to add thousands of milligrams of sodium a day in order to get the sodium chloride that you need in your diet. And the problem with adding salt to food, like the problem with adding any highly refined additive, is it creates a mess. One of the messes that sodium addition to the diet creates is high blood pressure. Now, humans are designed to crave salt and to value salt and detect it at very small quantities. 
because it is such an essential nutrient. That's one of the reasons why plants are appealing to people is because they, they need these minerals that are so critical to their survival. But we began to fractionate and add fractionated sodium to the food because it's such a critical need. The brain perceived it as positive. And the problem with it, it includes about a third of the population extremely sensitive. They'll hold on to sodium in the water that is used to protect the body from it. And it increases blood volume and swelling, edema, congestive heart failure, high blood pressure, which leads to stroke and heart attack, et cetera. But there's another side to salt, even for those that aren't particularly sensitive to retaining it. And that's a, a situation of passive overeating. So the way we don't get fat is we eat to satiety. But if we eat things like sugar or oil, we'll eat more than we would healthfully do because it fools our satiety mechanisms because of the high, high fractionated processing. And the same thing's true with salt. Salt stimulates apostatic mechanisms. And so if you, for example, take rats, uh, give them their fill of chow, but you salt it, they'll eat significantly more. And now some people say, well, yeah, that's because it tastes better. <laughs> and that's true. But the reason it tastes better is because the sodium, just like the sugar and the oil, stimulate dopamine in our brain. And dopamine's the neurochemical associated with pleasure. So the more dopamine, the more pleasure, the more we like it. But it's a chemical induction. It's not a, a natural situation. And so if you give people say whole plant foods like rice, and they just eat their fill, they'll eat a certain amount. But you salt that rice up, they'll consistently eat more. And it will lead to obesity. And that's why you'll find all fractionated foods have either sugar, oil, or salt added to them because they got to make the stuff taste good. If you take grains and refine them, there's a little flavor left that they've taken out when they've turned that, say, brown rice to white rice. You end up having to salt it in order to make it palatable. And the more you salt it, the more palatable it is. And if you fry it and put some sugar on there too, now it's, you know, everybody's all happy except they get fat and sick. So the salt stimulates passive overeating. And also think about this. You have, what, five pounds of bacteria living in your gut. Important part of your immune system, important part of your defenses. And yet sodium is what? A preservative. You, if you salt your meat, it's to keep it, the bacteria from being able to break it down and spoil it and make you sick. Well, when you put lots of salt into your digestive system, it has a profound effect on your gut microbiome. And the shift in the microbiome is part of the problem that's associated with many of the diseases people are vulnerable to today. And by the way, that's another problem with meat in general is people that are meat eaters have a completely different flora than people that are plant eaters. And it's thought to be a less desirable flora and a flora that over the long term may make us more vulnerable. For example, why do meat eaters have so much heart disease? In part, it may be because of the increased TMA that forms in the intestinal tract of meat eaters that becomes TMAO and irritates the animal lining of the blood vessels and increases our risk of stroke and heart attack. As we learn more about this, we realize that, for example, though meat eating may be a useful tool combined with vegetables for short-term weight loss, it may not be the best long-term strategy if your goal is to avoid prostate, breast cancer, heart disease, et cetera, or if you're trying to reverse those conditions. So I know that a lot of the paleo folks want to blame sugar, and I don't disagree. It's a major problem, but it's not necessarily the only problem. That's the point we're trying to make. Anyway, trying to get back to where we agree. I think we can all agree that salt, oil, and sugar at least have some questionable, you know, merits in the diet. We can all agree that exercise is a critical component to maintaining health, dissipating the effects of stress, etc. We can all agree that sleep is an important commodity and that sleep deprivation is associated with 
all kinds of health compromising issues. And I think everybody on both sides can agree that fasting appears to have a profound beneficial effect. And in fact, what so much of the stuff is trying to do is to mimic the effects of fasting on an ongoing basis because people don't want to have to face long-term water-only fasting. So they're trying to come up with ways of getting the body to make the changes it makes in long-term fasting, but with you know a more pleasant, easier, more practical, whatever type of intervention. I don't disagree that you can induce some of those changes short-term. What I'm arguing is that if our concern is long-term health, avoiding long-term debility, maximizing both healthy life expectancy and life expectancy, a whole plant food SOS-free diet, I believe has the best support. And it's certainly what my experience has been in the last 35 years. And the patients that I see that are doing it can prove it with their clinical outcomes. And we're trying to prove it with our research. Now, does that mean that you couldn't do that same whole plant food diet and include some animal foods and be healthy? No, you probably could. The question is how much, you know, what's the ideal amount? The problem today is that the animal foods that are available to people, even when they're free range and other, have significant health potential problems. And we can talk about that. But, you know, I believe the data best supports a whole plant food SOS free diet if our goal is to avoid long-term debility. Now, if your goal is short-term weight loss, you can, you can make lots of different arguments. You can cut your leg off at the hip and it's 40 pounds overnight, okay? 500 calories of Twinkies and... Yeah, they've got drugs now that'll coat your intestinal tract. You can keep eating ice cream, but you'll just, you'll just have explosive liquid diarrhea. And, but you know, you'll lose weight. So I don't really care about what's the shortest, fastest way to lose weight. Although honestly, the shortest, fastest way to lose weight is water-only fasting. But anyway, the goal is what's the best for long-term health. And that's where my arguments would be. If we can it come, become convinced that the best way to maintain long-term health is to include some animal products in that mix, then we would do that. But so far, that has not been my interpretation of the, my experience or the literature. Quick question about the salt while we're talking about it. Do you know how long on average, if a person is on a higher salt diet and they switch to no added salts, how long it takes aldosterone to adjust? And Yeah, there's actually a well, there's two questions here. There's the aldosterone acclimation, because you know, as you know, at some time at first, and particularly if people have conditions like hypoparathyroidism or something where they have trouble absorbing salt, they, they could have orthostatic hypotension or other issues when you reduce sodium intake. Probably the more important first question, though, is how long does it take people to get used to eating a low-salt diet? And we, there's literature on this. In fact, we did a study here, a t- taste adaptation study, where we actually detected minimum threshold of salt and sugar and then did fasting and, and showed the profound effect on taste that fasting has. It literally changes your perception to sodium and sweetness and the hedonic effects. The medical literature says that it takes people about 30 days to adapt to a low-salt diet on average. So, you know, that's, there's a bell curve, though, so some people it takes longer. So that means for about a month, people eating a low-salt diet don't like their food. It's tasteless, swell, they, it's disgusting, they can't, because they're used to a high-salt intake. But once people go on a low-sodium diet for a month, they neuroadapt, and then they can detect that sodium in, like, for example, chard becomes very salty, just plain chard. Whereas a person on a, adapted to a high salt diet can't really pick up the sodium because their, their tastes have been desensitized by the higher intake. So it, taste adaptation takes about a month. But if you fast, that can take place in a matter of days in some cases. 
And so that literally a short fast is sometimes enough to get people where they'll like the taste of healthy foods. And they're not dependent on having to put a bunch of salt on their food in order to be able to stimulate their jaded taste sense into function. And the naturetic effect of fasting is very profound too. The excess sodium in the body naturesis, and that's why you get this massive weight loss initially, where the body flushes out these pounds of fluid that have been held in order to protect the body from the devastating effects of these chemicals in the diet. And when the blood volume goes down, the blood pressure goes down, the swelling goes down, the congestive heart failure starts to reverse. It's really quite dramatic watching these people you know, transform before your eyes with fasting. Now, the same thing will happen eventually with diet if you control the diet well enough. But it's hard to get people to control the diet when the diet and the food tastes like crap initially because of their addiction. I wonder for people practicing daily intermittent fasting, if they switch to a low, you know, a low salt diet, like how long it would take? Well, uh, in our experience, it's probably going to be quicker. But even on a conventional diet, just eating a low sodium diet, it happens in a month. So it's not, you know, forever. I haven't done a lot of experiment on and quantifying that change. Because after fasting, I mean, oftentimes it's just days or a week or two of fasting and people, you know, they can take the good foods taste good. So that's one of the great benefits of, of longer term fasting. Now, you might be able to get some of the same effects with intermittent fasting, speeding things up if you kept the diet from being conventional. But as you know, even Walter Longo has done such brilliant research. You know, they're really just looking at the effect of intermittent fasting. They don't really aren't advocating people make radical dietary changes in between fasting. You know, you take their product, you do the fasting, and then you eat whatever you eat. So I don't think they have data yet on this particular aspect, or at least not that I'm aware of. Although they're doing massive amounts of research, they have uh, a dozen and a half centers actively working on different projects looking at this intermittent fasting process. I, I just want to make a point here. Dr. McDougall, for example, calls us the punishment, calls that as True North Health Center the punishment, because he says, you know, he'll send us patients that, you know, maybe their blood pressure is still too high or they're not responding to a more flexible plant-based diet. And he'll apologize to him because, you know, we restrict sodium and, and, and carbohydrates further than he does, which makes it very difficult initially to make the change. It's not easy to make that change initially. And his argument is that we need to get the most people eating a plant-based diet as possible to save the planet. Because as we know, getting out of animal husbandry can have a profound effect on some of the variables that contribute to global warming, et cetera. And so his argument is we need to do this to save the environment, not just for the individual's health purposes. I don't, I'm not arguing with him on that. I'm arguing that all I'm concerned about isn't how to get the most people doing it. It's to help the people that we're dealing with the most. And to help the people we're dealing with the most giving them a more flexible diet to make the transition easier, although it might get more people into it, isn't going to help them sustain health the longest, in my opinion. Now, we're doing a study right now looking at adherence, looking at dietary adherence. What does it take to get people not only healthy, but then how do you get them to stay on a health-promoting diet so they can sustain those results? And it is a great challenge because we live in a society designed to give people what they want, not what they need. And what they want is to continue to eat their animal-based, richer foods, and not pay the price for it. And what they need is to figure out how to get away from the addiction to the highly processed foods and the highly concentrated foods, in our opinion, and adopt a plant-based diet that allows them to recover their health and then more importantly, sustain it so that they don't spend the last 10 years of their life debilitated. You know, they don't want to end up unable to talk or move lying in some nursing home bed waiting for people to come and change their diapers because they've had a stroke or a heart attack. And we know that highly refined uh, foods and 
excess animal foods are associated with increased risk factors for these diseases. And the data is compelling there. Hi, friends. Do you want to come hang out with me and Dave Asprey and so many other guests I've had on the show? You simply must come to the 10th annual biohacking conference. May 30th through June 1st in Dallas, Texas. And of course, I have a massive discount code for you guys. I went last year to the one in Orlando, and it was one of the most fun times of my entire life. I met and got to hang out with so many guests that I've had on the show. I met so many of you guys. And of course, there's lots of Danger Coffee and Dave Asprey approved meals and Dry Farm Wines. And that's just the social aspect. The conference itself is mind-blowing. They have this incredible expo where they have all the biohacking supplements, all the biohacking things. You can learn about them, try samples, meet the creators and founders. If you haven't tried a lot of biohacking things, it's a great chance to actually try them out in person. Things like brain tap, infrared sauna, hyperbaric oxygen chambers, and so much more. There are so many incredible speakers as well. You can hear talks from people I've had on the show like Paul Saladino, Dr. Daniel Amen, Dr. Sarah Gottfried, Dr. Mercola, Dr. Annika Becca, and that is just a few of them. I seriously had the time of my life last year, and I would love to hang out with you guys. And you can get 35% off tickets. Just go to melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference and use the coupon code BCMELANIE to get 35% off your tickets. That's melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference with the code BCMELANIE to get 35% off your tickets. This code can be used for general admission or for VIP access. Seating is limited. They do sell out. They sold out last year. So get your ticket now. And if you come, definitely let me know because I want to meet you. So hopefully see you guys in Dallas. MelanieAvalon.com slash biohacking conference with coupon code BCMelanie. Get your tickets now. I'll see you guys there. Hi, friends. An incredible fasting aid is coffee. Yes, I am all about the coffee. I am a huge fan of its health benefits as well as how it can support your fast and really help with energy and fat burning. And I have a big announcement. The brand of coffee that I have been drinking for an entire decade now, I am no longer drinking. There's some drama, there's some science, and I'm about to tell you how to get a discount on my new favorite coffee. So I've been drinking the coffee formerly known as Dave Asprey's Bulletproof Coffee for literally a decade. I do not drink it now, so this is not a Bulletproof Coffee commercial, but I started drinking it because I so trusted Dave and his obsession in creating mold-free coffee because moldy coffee beans is a huge problem and a lot of people can get health issues, brain fog, and crash after coffee because of the mold contamination. Dave has been talking about this for so long, so I really trusted him and I would drink Bulletproof Coffee, which I absolutely loved and loved that it was mold-free. Then there was some drama. Dave sort of got kicked out of Bulletproof. He might be going back. There's a lot of stuff going on with that. Follow him on Instagram if you want to learn more about that. He even talked about it at the recent biohacking conference. But in any case, (laughs) drama aside, he can no longer speak to Bulletproof Coffee as to whether or not it is mold-free. And he ended up making a coffee even better than Bulletproof Coffee, and it is called Danger Coffee, and friends, I love it. It's the first coffee that is not only mold-free, but actually can help you remineralize. Yep, that's right. Danger Coffee contains a patent-pending formula that actually remineralizes your body with more than 50 trace minerals, nutrients, and electrolytes. 
On top of that, it is super clean. I know people like to see organic labels. Friends, I have learned so much about the certification industry. And honestly, the best of the best is finding people that you trust who do extensive testing and third-party certification. That's what I do with my Avalon X supplements. And that's what Dave does with Danger Coffee. So with Danger Coffee, they use a process that far exceeds government and industry standards. And it is third-party lab tested. So you can rest assured it is free of mold toxins. As for the flavor, Dave selected these hand-picked farm direct beans for their quality, their superb flavor, and their elevated performance. I love the taste of it. It's much richer and more nuanced than Bulletproof Coffee. It's honestly one of the best coffees I've ever tasted, and it's so exciting to know that when I'm drinking it, I'm actually helping to remineralize my body. So that's right. If you want your coffee to contain antioxidants, anti-inflammatories, micronutrients, and help optimize your fasting, you want Danger Coffee. And of course, I have a discount for you guys. You can go to melanieavalon.com slash dangercoffee and use the coupon code melanieavalon to get 10% off. Again, that is melanieavalon.com slash dangercoffee with the coupon code melanieavalon for 10% off. This is my favorite coffee. Like I said, it takes some really good coffee and convincing biohacking health reasons to break me from my 10-year decade bulletproof coffee habit but sometimes you just got to upgrade. And by the way, this would make epic presents for people. This can just become your go-to present. Not only will people love it, but you'll be helping their health as well. Everybody wins. MelanieAvalon.com slash Danger Coffee with the coupon code Danger Coffee. You did studies on how long it took their taste buds to adjust to both sweet and salty. Did one happen first or was it around the same time as far as the cravings? Ooh, that's a really good question. I don't know the answer to that. I have to go back to the data because we only looked, you know, the fasts were relatively short. It was about 10-day fast. And that was enough to have the changes. But as far as, you know, I don't even know if we have, we had data baseline, end of fast, end of feeding and follow-up. So I don't know if we can answer that with our data set. It's a really good question, but it happens so quickly to both that I don't even know how clinically relevant it is. A recent episode I just aired, we were talking about emotional eating and how some people crave salty, some people crave sweet. I wonder if it would be pretty individual based on that. Let's talk about emotional eating. You know, one of the things that we can't separate is the mind and the body. And some people eat because their brain is telling them that they're dying. And that's what happens when insulin levels go up and blood sugar levels get driven down. And your brain is saying, listen, you're not getting enough calories, let's get more calories. And so if we want to keep our insulin levels stable, there are things like intermittent fasting, like long-term fasting, and like eating a diet that doesn't have a bunch of sugar oil and salt in it that allow insulin levels to normalize. And then people's blood sugars don't get driven down and then they don't get this cravings, which you know sometimes they may interpret as being emotionally driven, but sometimes it's just biologically being driven. Your brain's trying to keep you alive but it's getting bad information or not even bad information. It's getting, it's misinterpreting what's going on. It's because blood sugar levels go down. That means you're not getting enough calories in unless you're eating so much fat that you're in ketosis. And then there's a hunger blunting mechanism associated with fasting. And so, you know, if you get the ketone levels up, it blunts the hunger. When our patients do long-term fasting, there's no hunger after a couple of days. In fact, sometimes there's no, if they lead in properly, there's no hunger at all. If you lead in with a good, appropriate lead-in diet, you can minimize even, even the initial discomfort. But most patients, by the end of the second or third day, and they're fully in ketosis, 
don't report hunger. Hunger is not part of the problem. Boredom might be, or you know, weakness might be, but actual hunger really isn't usually a limiting factor. The people that are having a lot of hunger, though, are people that are using, for example, when they're on juice fast or they're getting sugar and their blood insulin levels are still bouncing around, those people are going to have more difficulty with, with hunger. And the people that really have trouble with hunger are people eating refined carbohydrates because they're constantly going into, into this kind of rebound effect. The other thing is people, you know, sure, they eat for a lot of reasons. Mostly they eat to get out of pain. And one of the pain is when their blood sugar levels drop and they feel hungry. And some people have emotional pain because they're mad at people tell me, oh, they only crave chocolate when they're mad at their husband. And then they want to eat chocolate. Now, of course, I tell them, listen, make your husband eat the chocolate. If he's making you mad, why should you suffer? It's his fault. And so, you know, yes, if you eat, it, it can it can give you a different response or mitigate some of the pain or the sensations you're experiencing. Maybe that's a driving force, you know, for people to indulge, but usually they're indulging in not whole natural foods. If you're really hungry, any source of calories will take the edge off the immediate hunger. If it's a special hunger where you have to go out and it has to be peanut brittle or whatever, that's not hunger. That's an appetite. And that's, that can be driven by all kinds of things. I had not come across this study before, but in the pleasure trap, you you talked about a study in rats where stressed rats don't gain weight with normal food. Like there's this idea that our emotional stress and everything is maybe the root cause of weight gain. But when rats are experienced this stress, but they have their normal diet, it can potentially protect them from weight gain compared to when they have like a processed food. So, you know, emotions can affect the decisions you make about what to eat. But it's what you eat that determines what happens to you. For example, if you're under inordinate stress, but you're on a restricted whole plant food SOS-free diet, you will not be able to maintain obesity. It doesn't mean you couldn't overeat. It doesn't mean you, know, you might not lose the weight at the rate that you should. And that's certainly true, especially for women who are essentially energy-conserving fat storage devices, biologically speaking, because they have higher levels of estrogen, which is a fat storage hormone. You know, if, you, if you inject men with estrogen, the first thing that happens is they get fat. They grow breasts and have hips that enlarge. And if you inject women with testosterone, they're going to lose fat. But then they get hearing and cancer and die. It's probably not a good strategy. But the point is, a lot of these differences are, are biological differences. And they're not just emotional differences. Emotional factors affect decisions you make. What you eat determines what happens to your health. And what, my point was, if you take emotionally distraught people with a bunch of emotional scar tissue, but you restrict them to eating a whole plant food SOS-free diet, they will not sustain obesity despite the fact they have. Now, sure, is it easier if you don't have emotional scar tissue? And, and it, sure, because you can make better decisions. And it also helps if you're educated enough to you know, have clear decisions to make. Now, differentiate animal food from highly processed refined carbohydrates. Animal foods are whole foods. We're not denying that. They're just very rich foods. And the question is, how much of it, if any, should you eat? You know, especially the, the animal foods that are available today. That's the debate. Not that they're not whole foods. You, you don't have the problems with obesity around, say, eating meat. You have a process around how meat's processed, if it's fried, if it's, if it's breaded, if it's salted. You know, now, the problem is plain meat not treated isn't necessarily that appealing, but different issue. I have a question, and I mean this completely respectfully. I'm just wondering your opinion on it. So like in the Blue Zones, for example, in the, the seven countries that he focuses on, so what do you feel about 
the idea that, or the fact that six of them, like all of them have a little bit of animal food with the exception of Loma Linda. Well, everybody's going to use animal food if they have access to it, especially in a situation where scarcity is an issue. So the traditional diets always would have included whatever the most concentrated calories were available to people. And, you know, if you go back far enough in history, there was no, you know, concentrated oils and sugars and salt was so precious it was considered a means of exchange. You know, that's where your term salary comes from. So the idea that people would include those rich foods that stimulate dopamine in the brain isn't surprising. And if you go to the same, you know, if you go around the world, anywhere where things like cocaine are available or alcohol is available, they'll certainly use it. It doesn't mean that they're doing well because they're including animal foods. It may be in spite of it. And if they keep small enough quantities of animal foods, you can't tell the difference as far as I can tell in the epidemiological literature. People that eat very small quantities of animal food and mostly plant-based foods and get lots of exercise than people that eat no animal food. So I'm not arguing from a health standpoint that people couldn't include small amounts of animal food and still maintain a high degree of health. But just because you can do something doesn't mean you should do something. And so the idea is we don't have good examples yet of populations that have been strictly plant-based. And that's why we're doing the research we're doing is trying to look, you know, how compliant do you need to be doesn't make a difference. I don't say that I have all the answers on that yet. That's what we're doing the research about. My conclusions based on my clinical experience, though, is the less animal food we have in the diet, the better the clinical outcomes are in the conditions that we're treating. Now, granted, we're only treating certain conditions, high blood pressure and cardiovascular disease, diabetes type 2, autoimmune diseases, cancers like lymphoma, obesity. Those conditions, I'm fairly confident clinically that this is an approach that's highly effective and efficient. It's safe. It appears to work well, and it works better than any other data that I've seen. Our effect sizes are off the charts when it looks to treating conditions like blood pressure, et cetera. And if you look at the research on our website at healthpromoting.com, you can see we've got you know, compelling long-term data that suggests that you can get healthy if you eat healthy. So this might be a more of a philosophical question, but a completely plant-based diet with no animal foods, since we don't have examples really of long-lived populations doing that. Is it possible that the ideal diet for the human being is a diet that requires some sort of privilege to maintain, like that we haven't evolutionarily experienced? Well, when you think about it, the animal-based foods traditionally were restricted by circumstance because they tend to be expensive biologically speaking. And so, and economically speaking. So, I mean, you know, the diseases of kings, it was only the kings that got the gout and the all the problems that come, the heart disease and stuff, because they were the ones who could afford to eat the rich foods, particularly the animal foods. So I don't think it's a, it's a question of, the, the, what do people, the, the billion and a half people in the world that make less than $5 a day eat? They eat rice and beans, because those are the most cost-effective calories. And that the animal foods traditionally had been more celebratory foods, you know, in the special occasions and all that, because they are very rich and nutritious and have all kinds of things. Of course, the animal foods that were available then constitutionally were different than what we're raising today. So, you know, that's certainly another consideration. But even then, traditionally, foods were used in moderation. Now, you know, we have Christmas for breakfast and Thanksgiving for dinner. And, you know, every day, every meal is a holiday treat compared to, you know, the world of our ancient ancestors. I guess what I meant by privilege was if a person were to follow a completely plant-based diet today, without animal foods, would it require them to supplement or could they follow that diet 
Well, I've done it since I was 16. I'm 62 today. The only supplementation that's required on a plant-based diet is vitamin B12. Because the only source of B12 naturally is bacteria, and we're so hyperhygienic in our environment today, so we wash, we peel everything because we don't want worms and parasites, we don't get much bacterial contamination unless you eat meat. Of course, meat, you know, if you take ground meat, I mean, it's full of feces and all kinds of rich sources of bacteria. So the one good thing there is you do get plenty of B12 if you're eating animal products. But unless you're eating stuff pulled off the trees and you get insect contamination, et cetera, you will eventually run into B12 issues on an exclusively plant food diet. And so we do recommend 1,000 micrograms of B12 a day for people that are on what we consider an optimum diet. For people eating meat, they, you know, meat eaters also develop B12 deficiency, so you still want to do your early checks and make sure it's adequate. The other nutrient that sometimes is limiting on both animal-based and plant-based diets can be vitamin D. D is fortified in animal foods like milk, but unless you get out in the sun, which is the best and natural source of vitamin D, you live behind plate glass, live very far north, uh, you can develop D deficiency, and it's common, and it's a problem. And so we test all patients for D. If, if they're too low, we try to get them out in the sun more. If that doesn't work, we'll supplement them. But, you know, supplementation is actually rare and, and limited. There are a couple other examples. If you live in Minnesota and you only eat your food grown on your Minnesota soil, you'll develop iodine deficiency. And so we'll either include sea vegetables in that diet or, or supplemental iodine. Or if, you, if you're eating animal foods, then you get iodine from your fish and things like that. So it's not that there aren't potentially rate-limiting nutrient issues, but there are few and far between. And that's not the reason people are sick in our society. Most people in our society are sick from dietary excess, not deficiency. And it's excess fat and protein in particular, and particularly, in our opinion, excess animal fat and animal protein, uh, in addition to refined carbohydrates, they're responsible for the problems that we're seeing with heart disease, cancer, diabetes, and, and, the, and the rest. And, you know, again, I would challenge anybody, look at the effect of using a whole plant food SOS-free diet in conjunction with fasting on high blood pressure, if nothing else. We have the largest effects that have ever been shown in the scientific literature with an average effect size of 60 points in stage 3 hypertension. And that's not counting the fact that people are often medicated when they start and they're not medicated when they're done. That's incredible. And that's with the, the fasting and the, the refeeding period with the plant-based diet? And on follow-up. So yeah, we, we're encouraging people to continue whole plant food diets indefinitely because the truth is unlike the problems you run into for, like I see patients consistently in the practice that attempt a animal rich with limited carbohydrate diets, but they get problems with gallstones. They get problems with digestive issues. They get cancer problems. They're prostate cancer. They're, they're getting sick when they convert to those diets. And all we have to do is basically just pump up the plant foods, get rid of all the refined carbohydrates, animal-based foods, they recover. You can see their hemoglobin's A1C drop from 13.5 to 5.2. And they're able to sustain it indefinitely. And they don't get the problems that you see on with some of the, you know, the Atkins diet type, you know, recommendations that have been made. So, you know, those diets, I'm not disagreeing that those diets can be highly effective short term Getting people off for fun carbohydrates, anything you do to do that helps and they lose weight. It's long-term that, that the problems run into. And I have the benefit in my practice of tracking patients now for three decades and more. In fact, I remember my mom when she turned 92 and she got started pretty late with this approach, but when she turned 92, she'd outlived all 52 of her friends. Every one of her friends were dead. 
And, you know, a lot of them used to make fun of her crazy diet and her son's crazy ideas and all that kind of stuff. And she said, Alan, you need to warn your patients. If they're going to do this diet, make younger friends. And much younger, she said, because, you know, her friends, when they, you know, by the time she got in her 80s, they were all falling apart in nine. And when did she start the diet? With her? Mm -hmm. She started when she was 58, I believe. So she had, you know, a little over three decades of it. So she, she got started a little bit later, but she did, you know, she survived a long time and did real well with it. outlived everybody else. So we felt pretty good about that. It's really gratifying to see these people. Now they, they keep, again, a guy we had in the practice a few weeks ago, 30 years, he's been doing this thing. He's aging out completely differently than everybody he knows. And of course they tell him, well, he must just have good genes, you know, but you know, we're seeing it across the board. I tell him, yeah, he's got designer genes because you know, he's, he's taking advantage of not only his genetic strengths, but also the epigenetic strengths. What's interesting is seeing the people that were sick, though. And now we ask, in fact, we require of our cancer patients, they either agree to long-term survival or at least to outlive their oncologist. And so we're asking them to get young oncologists so that, you know, they really get the most uh, most time out of it. So when patients come to True North, do they immediately jump into the fast or is there a weaning off of their diet period? Well, it depends on the patient. If, a, if it's a healthy patient, the people that get the most benefit from fasting are healthy people that want to stay that way and they're using it preventatively, proactively. These are people that come in, they've prepped well, they've been on a whole plant food SOS-free diet, they're off the caffeine, the alcohol, the other drugs that are so difficult to withdraw from and they can start fasting usually on arrival uh, as soon as we do our exam. We do exam, baseline history exam, laboratory baseline. They go on the fast, they fast anywhere from five days, 10 days, whatever's appropriate for them, and then they recover. People that are sick have to, again, go through history exam and lab, but then sometimes we have to finish getting them off their medications. Some of these patients are working with our doctors through our phone coaching services. Our doctors are available through Zoom and and whatnot, and they may work with the doctors for a week or a month or longer before they come in so that when they come in, they're ready to go on fasting. So we may have already weaned them off their meds and dealt with the dietary changes. And it's really important that people prepare properly for the fast. People that come in off animal foods have tremendous difficulties adapting to the fast, but people that come in on a whole plant food SOS-free diet for two days and haven't had caffeine, haven't had alcohol, they usually fast very easily and they can get into it very quickly. So once a person's stable off medication, because obviously you're not going to fast on medications, they're able to get into the fasting process, go through it, and then with a patient with blood pressure, for example, you fast until the blood pressure is normal, assuming they have the reserve. So they might fast anywhere from five to 40 days. And then we recover. It takes half the length of the fast for recovery. Progressive refeeding, you have to avoid refeeding syndrome and food shock. You don't want to kill people by too rapid restoration to, to foods. That's why we require half the length of the fast in a controlled setting to ensure that that gets done right. We really want to have good outcomes because it you know, messes up your data if people have bad outcomes. So anyway, so they recover, they go home, we ask them to stick to a healthy program that the doctor that they've worked with has, has set them up. They're able to get ongoing support. We have a Zoom channel. They can watch our videos. We have a, a, a Vimeo channel where they can tune in to our live Q&A and lectures each day, twice a day. And they can consult to our phone coaching services with, with their attending doctor that can provide them encouragement, support, intimidation, or advice, whatever is needed. And our goal is to, to get people to give us long-term follow-up. And that means getting them to sustain the diet and lifestyle habits, the exercise, the sleep. 
Okay, great. Because I asked for listener questions for you and I got a ton and you touched on a lot of it just now. Like Christina wanted to know how many hours can you fast before the fast does not deliver any more benefits? So is it about that or is it about just... Well, we think there's uh, up to 16 hours a day for intermittent fast. We think there's support for Dr. Longo says that the, the data only supports 12 hours. That going to 16 hours is, is speculative. And I, I wouldn't disagree with him. He's like one of the leading experts in that field. But we advocate and we practice 16 hours a day of fasting. So we limit our feeding patients at our center to, to eight hours a day. Now, the problem when you get into the 24, 36 hours is you're kicking in that fasting adaptation mechanisms. And one of the reasons, for example, we don't allow exercise during fasting. We allow a little stretching and yoga and all that stuff. We don't do exercises because once you've depleted your glycogen stores, if you exercise, that glucose need, or if you use your, you get too active mentally, that glucose need can only come from gluconeogenesis. Now, the way that the intermittent fasting folks get around it is they're giving people some protein. You know, they're giving them 750 calories to try to minimize the gluconeogenesis. If you're not doing this right, what ends up happening is you mobilize protein reserves and you break down protein, which is exactly what we don't want to do. In fasting, we want to mobilize our energy from fasting. The best way to make the most energy derived from fasting is to do water-only fasting in an environment of rest. That's the most effective, efficient way of doing it. And so we recommend up to 16 hours of fasting, then feed properly, do that every single day. And then occasionally you take a longer period of time to do the longer fasting, whether it's five days or 40 days, depends on your, your circumstances, what's needed for that given individual. So basically with intermittent fasting, there is a, a limit. So up to 16 hours. And then when you are extended fasting, that's when you can keep going. You keep going. But if, if you're going to do the, the, the 16 hours to, to and, but not do water-only fasting, you're not going to restrict your activities, then you, you do your caloric restriction. For example, if people are getting somewhere between six and 800 calories, right? Or if you use the programs, you, you get enough calories to minimize gluconeogenesis. I think you still should be resting, but that's a different issue. And, you know, that's that you know, they talk about one or two days a week of restricted calories to facilitate additional weight loss. Here's the thing. I don't think you need to necessarily facilitate additional weight loss. If you're eating a whole plant food SOS3 diet away, we know average weight loss for females is two pounds a week and average weight loss for males is three pounds a week. Interesting that males lose 50% more weight per week on average because of the testosterone. You know, they say women have to work a lot harder to get the same effect, and that's probably true. Actually, some of my patients say if they walk by the buffet table, they don't have to eat it. They gain weight. It's a bad dream. It's a dress size, and it's probably true. Women lose, have to work harder, and and, uh, well, this and everything else too, isn't it? I want to clarify some things you said because I know listeners, they're very much immersed in the intermittent fasting world. So they're probably, their ears are perked up with this. So you're saying with the calorie restriction, is that calorie restriction paired with intermittent fasting, time-restricted eating, or calorie restriction throughout the day? Well, I think what we, we always do 16 hours of fasting. And then during that other eight hours, some people will limit the calories during that eight hours to 750 calories. Whether they're doing a prolon type program or whether they're doing a fruit and vegetable, you know, or, or other, you know, type of program or, or a higher vegetable fat, you know, some people use nuts, avocado, you know, I think the prolon base is probably macadamia nut powder or something. So if something where it's high fat, low carbohydrate, but there's still calories coming in, 
to minimize the amount of gluconeogenesis that has to take place. Is this comparing it to like mimicking an extended fast or? Again, you'd have to talk to the fasting mimicking people to, to get the details. This is not something I practice. So when I, here's what, what I know about. Here's what I have experience with it. Keep everybody fasting 16 hours a day. Feed them eight hours a day. Feed them a whole plant food SOS-free diet. That's about 10% of calories from protein, 12, well, 15 to 18% of calories from fat and the balance from complex carbohydrates. And then occasionally do long-term water-only fasting where they've had a history exam lab and they're monitored twice a day in a controlled setting. That's the only thing I have professional experience doing. Now, in terms of using these programs to do intermittent fasting for weight loss and whatnot, talk to the people that do that. That's not me. A lot of people will combine a high-calorie ketogenic diet with intermittent fasting. Yes. That's not, I don't have area, um, that don't have expertise in that. I have some philosophical concerns from a health standpoint. Again, what's good for short-term weight loss isn't necessarily for good for long-term health. And I want patients doing things every day that they can do forever. That's my preference, you know, if you can do it that way. Otherwise, you're talking about a short-term therapeutic intervention. And that may be appropriate, like fasting as an intervention. But mm, preference, when I'm on a diet that is good for them every single day for the rest of their life, and one that will not only increase their life expectancy, but their healthy life expectancy even more so. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely one thing I've seen a lot in the, the keto sphere is I have seen some people who seem to like, it seems like they can stay on it for life and they don't have these problems, but so many people seem to do a keto diet and it seems to work really, really well for a short amount of time. And then something happens and they just feel like, you know, this need to binge or this, you know. There is no data showing populations of long-term ketogenic diet adherence, you know, what the long-term effects are. And I've seen what happens to people that were successful with it short-term. When patients do whole plant food SOS free diets, I've seen them now 35 years in. You show me people that have been doing it the other way. I'd like to see that data. That would be compelling. Have the Inuit been doing it in the polls, the Inuit populations? I think they're a long-term like meat-eating diet. Yeah, although, you know, some of the, I know some of the Alaskan tribes, you know, had significant cardiovascular disease problems. Yeah, I think it happened when they started eating processed foods, though. Yeah, well, that may be. Again, what's, and also some of the populations have, you you also want to find people that have long-term life expectancies. And you can argue that predation and other issues are responsible for that. Again, not an expert in that area. I would defer to the people that are as far as, you know, discussing that population. If there's actually compelling data, the stuff that I've seen was really weak in terms of making the case for long-term compliance. It's also very difficult to talk about populations that would have high levels of, you know, disproportionately high levels of physical activity and other things that might allow people to compensate. And it might be in spite of, not necessarily because of. So the point is, I take people of all kinds of races here. And we see consistent, predictable clinical results when they adopt a whole plant food SOS-free diet in terms of dealing with their disease conditions. Okay, awesome. I really appreciate you talking about all this. I just know like these are the questions my listeners are going to be. It doesn't mean this is the only way to do it. There may well be you know, other ways to do it. And if there's ways to do it that's better than what our data is showing, I'd be more than interested in, in, in adjusting what we're doing to make it work better. So if you're listeners out there that, that believe that there's a better approach and I'm just ignorant because I don't know about this or that, I'm totally open to getting educated. All I can tell you is for 35 years, I've been using this approach because it seemed like the most logical one to me, you know, with whatever limitations I had in interpreting the literature. And I'm getting the data. 
So if I can get better data, I'd love to know about it. It's really, truly incredible. And the story I love that you talk about in The Pleasure Trap, if you'd like to tell it, was the one about, is it Dr. Tanner who wanted to kill himself? <laughs> well, and just I'll give you a quick summary. The guy was so riddled with arthritis and debilitating health conditions that he decided that he, he, life wasn't worth living. And, but he didn't believe in suicide because of religious reasons. So he decided he would just starve himself to death. And so he started fasting. And to make a long story short, after about a month, he was completely well, went back to feeding and spent the rest of his career encouraging people to do fasting and diet. It's incredible. I love that story. I love that story so much. Yeah, it is. It is. And it's pretty well documented. So I think, I think we're on solid ground citing it. <laughs> I love it. Some more questions about the extended fasting. So can people do extended fasting at home, like, like a three-day fast, or is that not recommended? Well, I'm not sure three-day fasts are particularly good. I'd rather see them doing 16 hours every single day and then when the time to do a longer fast is to do it in a controlled setting. In order to do a longer fast safely, you need to, first of all, make sure you're a good candidate. Medication complications are certainly an issue. Metabolic issues are there. So you do a history exam and baseline lab. And then we know that the person's a good candidate for fasting. It's also important that people realize that three days isn't going to necessarily get you where you need to go to resolve problems. If you had a problem that can be resolved in a three-day fast, you'll resolve it just with 16 hours of fasting every day and careful diet over time. The people that we're seeing, un unless you're talking about doing it just from a health promotion standpoint, and that we believe requires probably a little bit longer than that, but we don't know for sure because that's an area we're researching right now. How long does it take to induce the changes we think are associated with health promotion and, and life extension you know, benefits? We, we believe, though, that these changes take longer periods of fasting to, to induce those. So if you're going to do something shorter, you may be able to do the fasting mimicking programs. But I wouldn't recommend water-only fasting other than 16 hours a day and then longer fasting. It'd be 5 to 40 days. And that is, in my opinion, better done at least working with a doctor that, that knows about fasting so that you can get a proper history exam and lab advice. Now, we're not the only place that does that. There's a place in Ohio, there's a place in Florida, there's a place in Texas, there's a place in Southern California. We're training doctors that are opening up places. There'll be lots of places to do that. But it's really better. People really muck it up. And it can actually be very dangerous. Long-term fasting with inappropriate refeeding can result in refeeding syndrome and, and can result in very significant post-fasting edema, other complications. We don't recommend that. People that shouldn't be fasting can end up really in trouble because of their medication complications. So we do offer a service though, if people, that costs nothing. If they wanna to go to our website, complete the registration forms that gets me their medical history, I will do a phone conversation with them at no cost to tell them, are they a candidate for fasting and direct them to the places close to them that can guide them to do that safely and effectively. So, you know, for, for listeners that wanna know more about that, I'm happy to talk to them about it. And we also another service. If their doctor wants to help them do a home fast, we will help their doctor, no cost, get them the information they need So, to what they need to do as far as baseline exam, lab, and, and if they're willing to provide the monitoring and the responsibility for that, we'll, we'll help that doctor at no cost. And if that doctor wants to do something worthwhile with their life and go to heaven instead of hell, they can come and do a rotation or internship with us at the True North Health Center, which also will cost them nothing because we train them for free and we provide them housing and take care of them so that they can really learn how to use this approach healthfully. 
Hi friends, I am so excited to tell you about something that I am obsessed with that can revolutionize your health, help with stress levels, support longevity, and really help you when you go out and are having a bit of wine or drinks or all the things. And I'm going to tell you how to get $100 off. So I've been talking about the role of NAD in our health for so long. NAD stands for nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide. It is a coenzyme that is involved in so many processes in our body, including energy production and DNA repair. And it is depleted by things like stress, aging, lack of sleep, alcohol, and of course, too much partying. In fact, a lot of researchers believe that declining NAD levels is one of the key factors in aging. That's why I have been really interested in boosting and supporting NAD levels. And I have tried all the things. You can take precursors to NAD called NR and NMN. I still take NMN. However, I am much more alert by directly giving your body NAD. And historically, the most common way to do that that is accessible to people was through NAD IVs and NAD shots. I actually never did an NAD IV for a few reasons. One, they are extraordinarily expensive. Two, I've been doing the shots, which I liked because they were easy to do. That said, they always made me feel a little bit unwell right afterwards. And I've heard that the IV makes a lot of people feel unwell. So if the shots were making me feel unwell and that was going into the muscle first as like a barrier, I can't even imagine what putting it straight into my bloodstream would have done. Plus with the IVs, you have to sit there for potentially hours. So basically IVs were a no-go for me. So like I said, I was doing the shots, but I was like, I wish there was an easier way to do this. Then a company called Ion Layer reached out to me. Oh my goodness, friends. I am so obsessed. So they make transdermal NAD patches and they have studies showing that these patches actually boost your NAD levels. And what's so amazing is you put on a patch. It's super easy to put on. I have a video on my Instagram about how you do it. You basically get this patch thing with like a negative side and a positive side. You put saline on one side, you mix up the NAD with some sterile water and the NAD that they give you on the other side. Then you stick it to your arm or wherever you want to put it. You put a super cool black patch over over it, kind of like how you put the patches over CGMs. And then what's amazing is there are no side effects. You don't feel unwell from it and it lasts for 14 hours and it's so easy. You can do it at home and then you can really decide when you want to do it. So with the shots, I was doing them once a week and I was trying to do them before going out with this patch. Now I put on the patch before going out and it makes me feel so good. It really helps the next day from any alcohol recovery that you may need. And they look pretty awesome with my outfits. Not going to lie. I am obsessed with these patches. I just want everybody to know about them and they are so much more affordable than the shots or the IVs. If you want to boost your NAD levels, support anti-aging, help with your stress, help with lack of sleep, and or optimize your partying. You need these patches, friends. And I'm so excited because working with the company has been amazing and they are giving you guys $100 off, which is incredible. So to get that discount, just go to melanieavalon.com slash ion layer. That's I-O-N-L-A-Y-E-R and use the coupon code melanieavalon to get $100 off your first order. I cannot recommend these enough. I'm going to use them for the unforeseeable future, probably for the rest of my life. It's literally just become part of my arsenal now. Like when I'm getting ready to go out, usually once a week, put on my NAD patch. And even if I don't go out that week, I still like to do one once weekly. 
Oh, P.S. They're also amazing for traveling. You guys know I'm not a big traveler. I've been doing more traveling recently and I wear these on the plane there and back. Game changer. Although it's really fun at TSA, especially because I already opt out and don't go through the scanner thing. So they already are suspicious. And then they're like, what's that on your arm? And I'm like, it's NAD. And then they're like, what's that? And then I'm like, it's a coenzyme in your body that's involved in a lot of metabolic processes and energy production and DNA repair. And then they just look at me really weird, but it's fine. It's totally fine. So again, that's melanieavalon.com slash ion layer to get $100 off your ion layer kit. It comes with six patches, totally the way to go for boosting NAD levels. And I cannot recommend it enough. melanieavalon.com slash ion layer with the coupon code melanieavalon for $100 off. Hi friends. Okay. So I'm a little bit embarrassed because I've been talking for so long about red light and near infrared therapy, which is so, so important. However, I kind of left out something really important about light. So as you guys know, I've been talking about red light and near infrared for so long. And at the same time during the day, I was using a bright, sad light. So it's those white lights that help with waking you up, help with your circadian rhythm. They're used to combat mood issues and depression. So I have a really bright white one of those at my desk. A few things about that. I knew it helped wake me up and kept me stimulated, but I wasn't sure if it had any detrimental effects using it. And then two, I was also wondering if by just focusing on red and near-infrared light, was I somehow missing something in the full spectrum of light? Guess what? I was. And guess what? I found the solution. And guess what? I have a discount for you guys. So the founder of a company called Soulshine reached out to me and he was like, do you know about the importance of full spectrum light? And I was like, you know what? I've been wondering about this for quite a while. Please educate me. Oh my goodness. This man blew my mind. I talk a lot about the problems of blue light. That said, we evolved in natural full spectrum sunlight that our genes are programmed to respond to. And today we do not spend enough time in that light. A lot of us don't go outside and we're overexposed to blue light. It's a problem. And then to make things even more problematic, the common sad lights that I was talking about that are bright white, they actually do not contain the full spectrum light. They filter out certain wavelengths and they're high in blue light. So just like I thought, it was not doing my health many services. There is only one company I have found, or I guess that found me, that makes a full spectrum white light device. So the Soul Light Systems include the fullest spectrum of visible and invisible near-infrared light with traces of UV light. Yep, that's right, because you need all of that as well. Don't worry, it's not an exuberant amount that's going to cause a problem. It's just a tiny little dose that your body actually needs. You can use these lights to fix your circadian rhythm and properly stimulate your brain's suprachiasmatic nucleus, or SCN, in a way that it was supposed to be stimulated. It's kind of like the natural spectral diet. Because yes, you may be suffering from malillumination. Did you know that your entire bloodstream actually filters through your eyes in a relatively short amount of time, that's the only way your blood is exposed to the outside world. So when we expose our eyes to this light, it actually can have beneficial effects on our blood. That is crazy. It helps with skin, with mood. This is the light that I wasn't thinking about that we need. I love Soulshine's light therapy devices. I do use it in combination with my red and near infrared light devices as well so that I can fully bathe my body 
in the best light that is so helpful for my sleep, for my stress, for my metabolism, for my immunity, for my health, so many things. They have so many different device options. They have one that I love that kind of looks like a juve and I sit it on my desk and it has options for the full spectrum light, which is that bright white light, as well as an ear infrared option. So what I do is I do a session of the full spectrum light in the morning and then I run the near infrared to help counteract the negative blue light around me. They also have stands with bulbs that you can get. I've been using some of those on my plants. I am just so grateful that Ken at Soulshine found me because I was missing out on such a key aspect of light and I had no idea. And you can get 10% off at melanieavalon.com slash soulshine. That's S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E with the code Melanie Avalon. So melanieavalon.com slash soulshine, S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E with the code Melanie Avalon for 10% off. It's really helped my mood, my energy, my sleep, so many things. I think you guys will love it. So again, go to melanieavalon.com slash soulshine, S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E and use the coupon code Melanie Avalon to get 10% off site-wide. And we'll put all this information in the show notes. Friends, you guys know I love wine. Do you love wine? I've done a lot of research on wine, and I truly believe there are a myriad of health benefits. The longest-lived populations drink wine. The polyphenols have a ton of potential health benefits, activating anti-aging sirtuins, potentially supporting our immunity, maybe even encouraging weight loss. Yep, it's actually not alcohol that makes people gain weight. It's what they eat when they drink. But if you want all of the benefits of wine, the type of wine you're drinking is key. Conventional wine in the US is often full of toxins. We're talking things like pesticides, mold, and additives, dyes, colorizers, artificial flavors. Have you even seen some wine that says vegan? That's because conventional wine isn't even necessarily vegan because of the additives. I am obsessed with a company called Dry Farm Wines. They're not a wine producer, but rather a wine investigator. They go all throughout Europe and they find the wineries practicing organic practices, and then they test those wines to make sure the wines are, wait for it, low alcohol, low sugar, free of toxins, free of mold, and truly supportive of your health. I'm obsessed with Dry Farm Wines. One of the most fun things for me as a wine lover is you get mixed boxes of wine and it introduces you to varietals from all over the world. The wines taste amazing and you can say goodbye to hangovers. If you think you can't drink wine, you've got to try Dry Farm Wines. I am obsessed. You can get a bottle for a penny. Yes, a penny. Just go to dryfarmwines.com slash melanieavalon and use the coupon code melanieavalon to claim your penny bottle. That's dryfarmwines.com slash melanieavalon. All right, now back to the show. That is incredible. So for listeners, I'll put links to all of that in the show notes. And again, the show notes will be at melanieavalon.com slash true north. Quick question about things that are being healed. One of the things I've been fascinated by with healing is so many of my listeners and myself included often have digestive issues and they say our intestinal cells are replaced every three days, yet it seems that for healing leaky gut or all of these things that it takes months and months. Ooh, yeah, but it's not just the cells, you know, the, and the lining cells. It's actually the microbiome. Five pounds of bacteria in your gut right now, living creatures eating, drinking, and defecating inside you right now. And what your bacteria poo in you can either be fertilizer, you know, vitamin K and nutrients you need, or it can be things like TMA. And we know that people that eat animal-based diets have a different bacterial flora and a much higher production of TMA. And so that's one of the arguments against too much animal food in the diet is you get 
not just trimethylamine oxidase form, but other products that are thought to be health compromising. Now, this is relatively virgin research, especially when it comes to fasting. In fact, we've done the first study that I know of with long-term fasting and changes in the gut microbiome. And I don't even have the data back from that yet. We did that with Luigi Fontana at Washington University. And so, you know, that's a very active area of interest in, in research where we'll be able to find out of the thousand strain of bacteria, which ones support long-term health and which ones can we control their defecation <laughs> or, or their elimination of products in a health-promoting way. And that's, that may be why gut leakage is so hard to heal. And just taking probiotics and stuff doesn't get the job done. Now, fasting has a profound effect on the gut microbiome. We know that's true. And we believe that what happens is a complete rebooting of the environment that allows healthier bacteria to recover. And we see these patients with gut leakage healing and the, the products that you measure that measure gut leakage healing. But it doesn't just take three days. So this idea that you're this rapid turnover of cells in the gut is, I'm sure, true, but doesn't, that's not, it's not that simple. This is a much more complex immunologically driven process. And so it's about creating the right environment and then putting the right diet in. I recently interviewed Joel Green on the show, and he wrote a book called The Immunity Code. And his theory about fasting and the gut microbiome is that fasting limits internal or external nitrogen production, that that was like the key thing changing the microbiome. Have you done any tests on the nitrogen balance? I don't, I'd have to check with our director of research. I'm a clinician. We have Dr. Tasha Myers, who's a brilliant PhD postdoc from Columbia that does our actual research design. And I have to ask her if that's one of the variables, you know, that has been already assessed. It sounds very interesting. I I have no idea if it's true or not. It was the first time I'd seen a lot of What was his name? Joel Green. And has he published a paper on this? He wrote a book. No, he doesn't do studies. Well, maybe he cites studies because I'd love to find any actual... I'll I'll look him up. I appreciate the the tip on that. Yeah, sure. I can connect you too. He's so nice. Like, he'd love to talk to you. That'd be great. Yeah, because, you know, we're we're just formulating some of our studies now for for next year, looking at not only long-term adherence, but we also, you know, want to assess, you know, how much, how long you know, to get optimum return. So we're looking for non-invasive biomarkers that we can use. They're going to help us really answer these questions because we clearly don't pretend to have all the answers. All we can describe is what we've been doing clinically and what the results are. It doesn't mean that we understand exactly how it's working yet. Awesome. Yeah, I'll connect you guys and you can, you can go down that rabbit hole. That'll be great. So yeah, when I ask listeners for questions, I got a lot of concerns about things that might happen with extended fasting. So just like rapid fire ones. Well, those that want to know, just, just whatever we don't answer right now, we have an actual fasting safety study that's been published in the peer-reviewed literature that looks at five years, all the patients, consecutive patients, over I think 600 people in this study, they looked at adverse events, stage one, two, three, four, five, using the uh, CATE criterias. And it's, it's well done, it's exhaustive, and it gives you a really clear picture of exactly what the risk factors are associated with fasting. And the conclusion was there was no deaths. There was only one category four event, which was a single incidence of naturesis that was easily corrected. And most of the stage three adverse events were what are called hypertensive crises. And those were in established hypertensive patients whose blood pressure was coming down. For example, if a person starts at 200, over 100, and the next day they're 190, and the next day they're 180, and the next day they're 170, each of those days is considered an adverse event because any day that you have a systolic pressure over 160 is reportable. 
But a hundred of our 300 events were those people whose pressure was actually correcting. The fact is we showed that fasting, when it's done according to the protocol that's used at the True North Health Center, is in fact a safe system. And not only safe for young people, up till that time, nobody would approve studies in patients over 65. But we showed there was no increased severity of complications in people that were older, so that people 75 can also fast. And so it's, it was, it's, a, it's a really important initial fasting safety study, and it's one that allows Human Subjects Committee for anybody to be able to have a protocol that can be used where prolonged fasting can be done safely. Okay, so I will definitely put a link to that in the show notes. The concerns that I got were, I don't know if it looked at these things. It was things like, Laura said adrenal fatigue. Karan wanted to know about if it slowed the metabolism. So let's talk about metabolism. It's, it's an old wives' tale that you fast and the metabolism slows down and it stays down. And we've had people with calorimetry machines here actually testing this. The metabolism does slow down while you're fasting. Obviously, the body's trying to conserve your resources. And by the end of the refeeding period, that is half the length of the fasting, your metabolic rate is back at the same rate that it was you know, before, unless it was elevated, then it's normalized. So this idea that fasting permanently changes things is just nonsense. It's not true. There is no permanency to that normalization that actually occurs. So People mistakenly believe, though, that they gain weight easily after a fast, but they're not differentiating weight from fat versus muscle, et cetera. Now we have the Hologix DEXA scanner that allows us to actually accurately differentiate what the body composition components are. And as I said, we've already done a preliminary study. We're finishing a major study right now, and it's clear that, in fact, just as you'd expect, it's fat that's primarily mobilized and the weight that's regained after fasting is muscle. Ritu was wondering about hair loss. Do you ever see hair loss? Hair loss happens anytime there's rapid weight loss, whether it's in pregnancy with hormonal shifting or any kind of, you know, where people lose large amounts of weight rapidly. The month following that experience, hair follicles may mature. You don't actually lose any hair follicles, but it all comes out together for a few days. It's because the body shuts off, you know, that whole protein catabolism is modified in terms of how keratins form. So the hair tends to mature at the same time. So it comes out, it looks like well, it is. You, are, you do get some thinning and then it recovers. So we don't see permanent changes unless there's other issues, thyroid issues or other kind of problems. There is a, a startling response that occurs, again, with hormonal issues or with any time people lose a whole bunch of body fat as the body goes into conservation mode. But it's not a permanent or I- issue. It's something we warn everybody about. It occurs in a small percentage of patients, but definitely is associated with rapid weight loss. Okay. And you touched on this earlier. It's a hot topic right now. Kim wanted to know how fasting would affect immunity. Well, we do not have a study yet done on active COVID-19, for example. We don't treat COVID-19 with, you know, at True North Health Center right now. We actually screen to avoid it, okay? But what we are treating a lot of now is post-COVID syndrome. So people are coming, they've recovered from COVID, but they have residual loss of smell or taste. They have persistent fatigue. Our assistant has this. Yeah, this is very common. And it's responded so far. You know, we have not done a study on this. I'm just talking anecdotally. But the, the limited number of patients we've had so far, we fasted them for post-COVID syndrome, have done remarkably well. We're very excited. We are, we are proposing to do a study because there's going to be this avalanche of people that have post-COVID syndrome. And then there's going to be another syndrome that's about to come up that'll be the consequence of immunization. You know, a lot of, there's a lot of post-vaccine problems that people get. And you know, undoubtedly, the vaccines they'll be pushing forward for COVID will also have some of these sequelae consequences. 
And for those that are persistent, we hope that fasting will prove to be helpful as it has in post-COVID syndrome in terms of the loss of smell and taste. We don't know the mechanisms yet. We've only had a few patients to date and you know, we need to obviously do a proper study, but you know, we'll get there. But let's take a look at why do people die from COVID? What do we know about the people that, you know, some people, most people get COVID and they, you know, they even don't know the habit or they recover. It's not, a, it's not a debility, but some people get really sick and some people die. Well, we know that one of the big risk factors for having bad reaction to COVID is metabolic syndrome. Now, it's particularly compounded by age, but being 80 itself may not be the problem, but the cumulative use and abuse that occurs when you are 80. Let's be clear. A lot of the people that are dying are people that were in nursing homes, many of which were hospice patients. So they had a high expectation of mortality in a relatively short period of time. doesn't mean the COVID wasn't devastating and terrible, but it doesn't mean that everybody is at the same risk for devastating and terrible. And so the question is, what can you do to try to be one of those people, whether you're old or not, that would be less vulnerable when you do get exposed to COVID from dying from it? Well, good advice might be, well, avoid it. So wash your hands, wear your mask, do your distancing and all that stuff. And maybe even more importantly, get rid of the excess weight, get rid of the diabetes, get rid of the high blood pressure and the medications that are necessary to to manage it, get rid of the metabolic syndrome. And then perhaps you'll be less vulnerable should you get sick from having devastating long-term consequences. But we're not doing that as a society. We're emphasizing right now the hand-washing and the and the distancing and the masks and stuff, but we're not telling people, like you never hear people talk about the relationship to obesity, to higher vulnerability, to negative effects during COVID, do you? Right. Well, because two thirds of people are overweight and obese and they think there's nothing can be done. It's helpless and hopeless. You can't, you know, we're fighting to keep the, the meat industry functioning fully. You know, I mean, we need to, I think, my opinion, shift people's attention to saying, let's do all the things they're asking us to do, but let's also get healthy. So people practicing normal, time-restricted eating, daily fasting, if they do get sick, not necessarily COVID, and you talk about this in the pleasure trap, but what are your thoughts on the natural anaerobic response, like people losing their appetite when they're sick? Almost like the body's trying to get them to do a fasting naturally, huh? Only kind of like animals do when they get sick, they naturally fast, huh? You know, what I recommend is that they consult with their doctor if they have a doctor that's not an idiot and or go to our phone coaching service and consult with one of our clinicians that what advice for them specifically would be best in their condition. And if fasting is appropriate or modified fasting or intermittent fasting, then certainly our doctors will give them that advice. And one more question about um, patients at True North. So when it's the water fast, do you supplement anything at all? Electrolytes, anything? No. Nothing. There are some cases where if people develop some clinical challenges, we may use we make a vegetable broth. It's called a therapeutic broth. There are things that we'll do to make it easier on people, you know, symptomatically, but there's no supplemental. There's no, in fact, there's explicitly no supplementation because we want those limiting nutrients to be the limiting nutrients so that we don't supplement them, say potassium, and then end up getting myocardial fibril breakdown because we let our arrogance exceed our ignorance. If you're not able to stabilize the fast, then you need to be in a modified fast where you're getting, you know, 600 calories of controlled nutrients. And we do that. Some people are not candidates for water-only fasting. We'll do modified fast or juice fast or other, you know, there's other things that we do. We don't just have, it's not just a one-trick pony there. What do you monitor like with the patients during the fast as far as like blood tests? They're seen twice a day by a staff doctor where we check their vitals, their 
they're, you know, all your t- standard blood pressure and pulse and temperature and oximetry, et cetera. And then we're worrying, we're looking at variables in the urine. We're looking at variables in the blood. You know, we have, you know, non-invasive diagnostic EKG, et cetera. So we do whatever we need to do to be able to clinically monitor the patient. The point is they have an exam twice a day though with a staff doctor. Okay. And then one thing I found really, really helpful and practical in the pleasure trap was you had a chapter on dealing with social pressure and all of that. <laughs> the seam strategy. Ah, yeah, that's Dr. Lyle's stuff. Yeah, the seam strategy. Uh, he is really brilliant. He's got to be one of the smartest people I've ever met, Dr. Lyle. Listen, he's really the best person to talk about psychology. That's not my area of expertise. But, you know, what he's explaining is that you don't want to be shoving things down people's throats that they're not interested in hearing because it's just going to create stress for you. And when you go out there and you start eating a healthy diet and you start losing weight, you start pissing people off. They get cognitive dissonance. They get real psychological pain. You and your thin body and your perky smile and your thin clothes. And it's a, yeah, you're going to start to piss people off even if you don't say anything. And you start opening up your mouth and say, oh my God, you're not going to eat that dead decaying flesh. I can hear your vessels thickening from over here. They're not going to like it. If you have an alcoholic friend and you go up to him and, you know, say, oh, you know how your life sucks? It's because you're a drunk. You should quit drinking. They're not going to go, oh, it's the alcohol. I had no idea. Oh, thank you so much. You know, I just won't drink anymore. You're not going to be effective at at, uh, helping people, you know, maybe learn what you think is important, except by keeping your mouth shut and setting an example. And so Dr. Lyle provides a lot of techniques that you can use to eat your diet, but not piss everybody else off. How you can, you know, go along and get along without becoming socially alienated. And so you can still maintain your life and, and not upset people, especially as you become successful. There's a lot of people out there, I call them energy vampires. They're people that do what they do best. And that's make other people as sick and miserable as they are. So by comparison, they don't have to feel so bad. And you ask any woman that loses 50 pounds at True North Health and then goes to work, the other women are not like all happy and supportive. They don't, oh, what did you adopt a whole plant food diet? You look so wonderful. What can we do to be helpful? It's quite the opposite. And they're going to do everything they can to undermine your success. They're going to bring you cupcakes and ask you where you're going to get your protein from. And they're just, you know, it's terrible. And I have women tell me they have to like modify their behavior just to avoid pissing everybody off. Now it's interesting. Men don't have quite as much problems. If men lose 50 pounds and they go to work, well, the other men well, they don't notice, so it doesn't really matter. Or if they do notice, they don't care. So, you know, it's a little bit, again, easier for the men than the women in general. I know this is a generalization, but it's true. That's why generalizations are generalizations. Because women oftentimes have a lot more pressures, both on the negative and the positive. When it comes to weight loss, men, more or less, they leave us alone. So a little bit easier to be a man, in my opinion. There's a book called, by Farrell called Why Men Are the Way They Are which in my opinion is more about why women are the way they are, but it's an interesting read. And he, he's a psychologist that talks about a lot of this. Honestly, though, if your readers want to learn about this, they shouldn't be listening to me. They should be reading The Pleasure Trap. Or if they don't want to read it, they should listen to the audio version by Chef AJ, who did a great job putting it into an audio format. And it's a disturbing book that'll bend your mind because it doesn't tell you what you want to hear, but it does tell you what you need to know, in my opinion, to get and stay healthy. Yeah, it was really great for listeners. Definitely check it out really, really invaluable. Um, so I'll put a link to it in the show notes. Well, this has been absolutely wonderful. I, oh, I want to throw one thing by you since you're doing so many studies. I think I've come up with a way that 
you could account for the placebo effect with intermittent fasting. I think they should do a study where they give you a pill. And I realized that you would be taking the pill, so maybe you wouldn't be fasting. But the instructions for the pill would be that it has to be taken on an empty stomach and you can't eat for a certain amount of time before or after. Well, I have, you know, that's a really good idea. Why don't we do that? We'll, we'll charge $10,000 for a pill. Tell them in order to activate it, you have to fast for two weeks and then stick to a whole plant food SOS-free diet. And we guarantee it'll resolve your high blood pressure or double your money back. I tell you, there could be a lot of studies with this placebo <laughs> pill. Just take this pill with water, no food for this amount of hours before or after. People would think they were testing the pill, but really it's the fasting. There you go. So I think this should be done. I'm just putting it out to the universe. Well, this has been absolutely amazing. Thank you for all that you're doing. I know my listeners are going to love this. So if listeners want to learn more information, I'll put all the information in the show notes. Is it all on the True North website? Everything they would want, I, w- I think, will be on the True North website or on the uh, foundation's website, fasting.org. That's where a lot of the studies are posted on fasting.org. And all of the other information, the phone coaching, the, the website, uh, all of the lay articles are on healthpromoting.com. Awesome. Well, I will put all of that in the show notes. And that brings us to the last question that I ask every single guest on this podcast. And it's just because I realize more and more each day how important mindset is surrounding everything. So what is something that you're grateful for? Well, I am really grateful that I was able to discover the, the, the benefits of fasting at an early enough age that I could make it my career, that every day, all I have to do is allow the body to heal itself in the patients and, and try to take credit for the good results. That's incredible. Well, thank you so much. I am so grateful for what you're doing. It's really, really revolutionary. I hope that it just continues to grow and gets more out there in the, the popular sphere. And this has been absolutely amazing. And I'm in Atlanta right now, but um, I plan to move back to California. So when I do, I'm going to have to check out True North Health Center. Excellent. You let us give you the tour. Yes, that'd be amazing. <laughs> Very good. We'll look forward to seeing you. And maybe you can do a show as you experience fasting yourself. Oh my goodness. Because I've actually never done an extended fast, which also shocks my listeners. Well, come on out and may- maybe that'll be a-, a way of really uh, experiencing what we're doing. That'd be incredible. Okay, I'm doing it. On doing it. Perfect. All right. Well, thank you so much. And I'll-, I'll talk to you soon. My pleasure. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. For more information, You can check out my book, What When Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine, as well as my blog, MelanieAvalon.com. Feel free to contact me at podcast at MelanieAvalon.com. And always remember, you got this.